Oh, it's good to see these kids, you know, to be in a family that, that serves Christ and follows him. That wasn't something I was born into. And so it means so much to me just to see that. And I think how important that is. That's what I want for my grandchildren. And, and it's good to see our families making that sort of commitment. And I'm serious when I say it's a commitment of the church to the families as well. It's really important. It's important for us, especially those of us whose children perhaps have, have gone on or maybe we don't have kids. It's important for us to be part of ministering to these kids, maybe through Sunday school or some other way, because we want to pass on that faith. Amen. Now, word travels pretty fast around here, and maybe it's reached you, but are you aware of the big, well, it was kind of an earthquake this last week. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Bob Johns announced that he's going to be retiring as youth minister. I know. No! Boo! Yeah, everyone who's opposed, say, I. All right. Bob, are you here somewhere? There he is. You know what that means. It means you're stuck, brother, for another 38 years. Is that right? Let me tell you, I have told more people than I can count that Bob Johns is the greatest youth minister on the planet, and I mean that. What God has used him to do at this church in this community is practically unprecedented. And I, for one, am so grateful, but I know many of you are even more so. Some of you are sending your own youth through this ministry, Bob's ministry, and you yourself went through that ministry. In fact, probably your grandparents went through it too at some point. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, listen. Now, Bob's not going to be, he's not leaving tomorrow. He's going to be here through August. So you're going to have plenty of opportunity to express your appreciation. Believe me, this church is going to express its appreciation because we really are grateful for Bob's ministry, and he and, and Debbie just mean so much to folks here. So that's going to come. But wow, what a time. What a time. So you might be wondering, well, what next? I mean, who's going to follow Bob? <laughs> Some poor, unfortunate pe person who doesn't know better. You don't follow Bob Johns. You don't follow Bob Johns. But Bob really did um, a very unselfish thing uh, for the church and, and, you know, just for the ministry itself. He let us know quite some time ago about his plans and what he was thinking. And so the personnel committee has been working on this for some time. And there's a process that's already planned, and we're going to begin to work that process. And some of you likely will be involved in that. But be praying about that. We want, we want this ministry to continue. We're not looking for it to, to be reinvented. If it ain't broke, you don't fix it, and it isn't broke. So we're not fixing it. What we want is to find the right person that God gives us who can just enter into the next chapter, carrying on this ministry that has been done in exemplary fashion for 38 years. 
So, Bob, we thank you so much for your ministry. We're going to thank you a whole lot more before this is all over with. It is rough, hard. We've talked a bit, we use the language of bittersweet a lot lately about Blake and, uh, and Kara moving to, uh, to the mission field and the Tates move. Well, this is, this is one of those bittersweet things. But what a, what a ministry that you've had, brother. We really appreciate you and thank you for all that you've done. And, and we'll just see what God has next, both for the youth ministry here at First Woodway and also in your ministry going forward. So we appreciate you so much. This morning, I want to continue talking about the goodness of God. And I have to say something. If, if I were to stop with the last two messages, and I'm not taking back anything that I've said, but if I were to stop with the last two messages, I think you could accuse me of setting out a substandard, almost sentimental view of the goodness of God. There's more to be said than what I have said in a very important aspect that needs to be touched on. Because when we talk about the goodness of God, it's not just all happy talk. I mean, it has to do with God's goodness in this world as it is. And often this world is a terribly, terribly evil place. There's so much wrong that happens and so much suffering that happens. Now, when I decided to preach on the goodness of God, I didn't have it all scripted out where I was going to go, and I've been a little bit surprised by where I've ended up because the first two weeks, both weeks, I talked about the goodness of God in the face of events that seem to contradict it. And I guess that's because I know I'm speaking mostly to Christians. I'm not saying everybody in this room is a Christian. I'm not saying everyone watching online is a Christian. But most of you are, and you believe in the goodness of God. And if you're ever tempted to doubt it, it's because something happens that seems to suggest otherwise. And you wonder about God's goodness. So I talked about that the very first week, how we have to trust the goodness of God even though we don't understand. And then last week, I talked about how God works for good in every circumstance, that nothing happens that isn't father-filtered. And all of that is true, but it's insufficient. And in fact, radically insufficient if we don't add another element. So a man named Marislav Volf, he is a theologian who teaches at, at uh, Yale Divinity School. He's taught there for a number of years. He's a very consequential theologian. He's done some of the most important work in the last 50 years. I have in my hand a book that he wrote called Exclusion and Embrace. And in that book, he talks about reconciliation between people. That's something very important to him because he's from Croatia and he grew up during the war there in Croatia. It's a complicated story. It's hard to keep straight all the peoples that were fighting against each other. But those but the people of Croatia wanted to pull out of Yugoslavia. But Yugoslavia, dominated by the Serbs, were not interested in that. And many Serbs lived in Croatia, and that began a terrible war where terrible atrocities were committed. 
It's not an edifying story. But that's the world out of which Miroslav Volf came. And so he writes a lot about reconciliation in that kind of world where real trouble, real heartbreak, real evil exists. There's a place in this book that I've never forgotten. I haven't read it for some years, but I remembered it. And this morning, I pulled it off my shelf and thought, you know, I need to read this because I think this this makes it clear that when we talk about the goodness of God, we have to say more than what I've said so far. He's quoting a woman who had been through the war. She's a Muslim woman. She's from Croatia. She says this, I am a Muslim and I am 35 years old. To my second son who was just born, I gave the name Jihad. So he would not forget the testament of his mother, revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. So be it. The Serbs taught me to hate. For the last two months, there was nothing in me, no pain, no bitterness, only hatred. I taught these children, she's speaking of all the children in her village, I taught these children to love. I did. I am a teacher of literature. My student, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth. As the bearded hooligan standing around laughed, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. I don't know whether I first heard the cry or felt the blow. My former colleague, a teacher of physics, was yelling like mad and kept hitting me wherever he could. I have become insensitive to pain, but my soul... It hurts. I taught them to love, and all the while they were making preparations to destroy everything that is not of the Orthodox faith. Jihad, war, this is the only way. Those words pull you up short because here is a woman who has suffered such humiliation, degradation, pain, the rejection, the betrayal, her whole life, her whole life is upended. And she hates the Serbs. You know, it's so often the case that our sins are elicited by the sins of others. She's sinned against, and that scream of pain rises up in her as hatred. That's so often how it happens. But you understand what she's saying whether you've experienced horrible suffering or not, you still have experienced enough you can empathize, can't you? I mean, we all have this sense of justice, this, this idea of the way things are supposed to be. And there's a time when that sense of justice is outraged. Something is so wrong. It must be set right. So, 
Here is this woman. Her sense of justice is outraged, and she's full of hate. What are you going to tell her? What are you going to tell her? You know what? God loves everybody. God loves everybody. Don't judge. Don't judge. We're all sinners. We're all equal before God. Don't judge. You need to forgive. Is that what you're going to tell her? Is that what you're going to tell her? See, a lot of times we say things that are superficially biblical, but they're completely wrong. If you think all, all sin is equal, you are wrong. Jesus never taught such a thing. When he was talking about hatred and murder and lust and adultery, he's not saying that they are all equal. What he's saying is that if you think you're better than someone who commits adultery while, while you have lust in your heart, you're not any better. What he's saying is you're a sinner too. That's, that's what he's saying. It's all on the same spectrum. You, you might say that all sin is equally wrong, but that doesn't mean all sin is equally bad. Some things are far worse than others. And, and here this woman experiences that. Now, you could tell her, well, you know what? You need to, look, you need to forgive. You need to forgive. Don't pass judgment. You need to forgive. But you see, you're, you're, you're asking her to go one direction when this, this outraged justice pulls in her another direction and she's torn. And there are people in this room, there are people watching online, you know what it is to be torn. You know what it is to be torn. I've talked with, I've talked with women who were sexually abused from the time that they were little children. And it's like, it's like their father's just shattered every little bone of their self-esteem. I've talked with others who have been so hurt and so betrayed that they too are full of anger. And, and as sinful as it might be to hate, you certainly understand the kind of reflex that's going on there, right? We all understand that. So how do you get past it? Let me tell you, happy talk doesn't get you past it. Something else needs to be said. And that something else is this. God takes sides. And the God who is good is a God of justice. And there is such a thing as the wrath of God. The good God upholds his good creation and he opposes with all his soul that which is evil. And though it may not always be evident at any particular moment, God promises that before everything is finished, when all is wrapped up, the books will be balanced the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. The Bible says that and it says it in reference to God's goodness. I want to read to you an interesting passage from, from Exodus. Moses is told by God that he is, he is favored by God. You've, you are blessed, God tells him. And Moses says, if I have found favor before you, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. So listen to what it says. This is Exodus 33. Moses said, show me your glory. 
And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That's important. God's glory is God's goodness. His goodness is glorious. And so Moses wants to see his glory. And God says, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then down the next chapter, it picks up again. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, I know that last part is a hard saying, and I don't have time to pursue it this morning. It'd take us too far afield. Let me just put it in, in brief that the Bible nowhere teaches that someone will be punished for someone else's sin. He's, this is not envisioning children who are not themselves guilty being punished because their parents did something wrong. I can show you that by turning to several passages in the Old Testament, but I don't have time. What I want you to focus on, though, is that God is revealing his goodness. And in that is his grace, his faithfulness, his forgiving love, all of it's there, but also his wrath. God forgives, and yet it says he isn't going to let the guilty go unpunished. There's a tension in that. And what that basically means is God is a loving, good, gracious God who wants to forgive, but you can never take that forgiveness for granted. You can never presume upon it, and it isn't automatic. I was, uh, I was boiling some pasta one day, and I got the water kind of high in the pot, and I'm stirring the pasta, and some of the water spilled out of the pot onto the burner, and there was this sizzle that happened because the water and the burner, they don't mix. <laughs> When they connected with one another, the water evaporates in that sizzle. So God is a holy God, and God loves sinners, but there is an incompatibility between God's holiness and unrepentant sinners and everything that's evil. And there's a reaction that takes place not by God's intention, but by the inevitability of the situation that you have a good and a holy God. And part of that God's goodness is he remains who he is in the face of evil and darkness. And when the encounter comes, evil and darkness are destroyed. 
The wrath of God is part of his goodness. One of the most important New Testament theologians in the world is a man named N.T. Wright, and he speaks to this very issue. I want to read to you what he says. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. See, we talk about the wrath of God. We're not talking about wrath like we have, anger that we have that's full of sin. We have mixed motives. Selfishness is involved. We lose control of ourselves. That's not God. That's not God. God's wrath is the steady holiness of God encountering that which is evil. It wasn't that long ago we had a number of businesses raided because there were women enslaved there, human trafficking going on right here in in Waco. I was astonished to drive by some places where I thought it was going on right there. It was going on right here. Can the good God, a truly good God, look at that and be indifferent? Could that God say, you know what? You, You shouldn't get all worked up. Everybody's a sinner. I love everybody the same. And just let it go? What about the person who has dealt with it, who who is shattered by it? How do they recover? Do you tell them, well, you know what? You just need to forgive. Don't judge. Don't judge. You're no better. We're all sinners. We're all equal before. Is that what you tell somebody? I've been thinking about my brother a lot lately because this next week they're retrying the case. If you don't know, my brother was, was killed over four years ago now, a man wanted his truck, so he stuck a gun in his face and pulled the trigger. So I get back when this first happened, and we had the funeral in Baton Rouge, and I get back here, and we've got a men's event, and and it's a pretty large one. We've got tables set up and people sitting around the tables, and there were a couple of men there that I'd never met before. They don't actually go to the church. They were just there for that particular event. We We had a good conversation. And, you know, word travels fast <laughs> on something like this as in so many things. And, and they knew about what had happened to my brother. And they started saying, you know, you really need to listen to so-and-so. There was somebody they mentioned. I hadn't heard of him. But he had evidently some testimony that was online, and I needed to listen to him or I needed to reach out and meet him. I don't recall exactly what they said. But the reason I needed to do it was because he had gone to the man who had killed someone that he loved. Maybe it was a family member. Details, I don't have them. This is four and a half years ago. But he went to that person in prison and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And they said, you know, God's going to help you do that. You really need to seek the Lord and ask him to help you do that. Now, listen, 
that did not wound me. It did not hurt me. I understood where they were coming from. I wasn't even upset with them. I understood they meant well. I thought they were stupid, (laughs) but I knew they meant well. Here's what I thought. I thought, I am so glad. (laughs) I am so glad you kept that foolishness to yourself and didn't or, and spoke to me and didn't tell, say that to my sister-in-law. I'm so glad. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to force somebody through to a place they can't get there yet. Now, what we need is to understand that the goodness of God takes sides and that we can trust God to be just. Some people don't like that. Some people think of the wrath of God as a problem to be solved. They're so used to this sentimental version of God that they think, oh no, wrath, how can I get that out of the Bible? There's a man named Marcion, now fondly known as a heretic of the early church, who said, you know, I read the Old Testament. That God is God of wrath. We need to get rid of the Old Testament. The only problem was so much of the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. So he said, well, we got to get rid of all the quotes from the Old Testament out of the New Testament. By the time he had sliced everything, he had very little scripture left. But what offended him was the idea that God would judge and that there's, there's an aspect of this, God's wrath, that has to be maintained. He couldn't see it. He couldn't couldn't accept that. And a lot of us are that way. But if you go to the Bible, you'll find that the holy wrath of God that moves him to judge sin, it's not a problem to be solved. It is the solution to a problem. Because in the biblical view, God has created a good world and people spoil it and deface it and warp it. They pervert it. They attack it. They destroy it. And the good and righteous and holy God will uphold his creation and he will oppose all who seek to destroy it. A lot of people don't like that, but you know, God doesn't like it when we don't take the truth that he's revealed about himself. Would you put up that Malachi passage? It's an interesting verse here. Malachi 2.17, it's the Lord speaking. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. He's speaking to Israel. How have we wearied him, you asked? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Oh, God is gracious. God's gracious. God's gracious. He's gracious to everybody, loves everybody. So that means God doesn't judge. Now, you understand, I'm not saying God doesn't love everyone. Certainly God loves everyone. But God's love is a holy love. And the Bible makes no apologies for that. Where is there hope if God does not deal with what is evil? Look around the world And you see what's going on. Don't you want God to intervene? So often in the Bible, the writers cry out, God, when are you going to act? And what the Bible says is God will act in the right time in the right way. God is always a good God. 
That's why he judges. So having said all that, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 12. Paul talks about what we are to do when we have been wronged. And some of you have been. In fact, you're stuck. You're stuck. You go to church and you hear all the happy talk about God's goodness. And you want to believe God is good. In fact, you do believe God is good. But you can't let go of what's happened to you, even though you're trying to say, you know, it's okay, I forgive, I forgive, and you're just so stuck. Listen to what Paul says. Do not take revenge. So it's not for a Christian to take revenge. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You will will cause them to feel ashamed and hopefully repent. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, how are we overcome by evil? We're overcome by evil when it takes hold of our souls. And like the woman... I quoted some time ago, when, when we grow in hatred or we become hard because of something that's happened to us, it's overcoming us. It overcomes us when we seek revenge, when we act out of that hatred. Instead, we are to do good to those who hate us. How can you do that? You can do it if you, if you trust that God will take care of justice. That's how you can do it. See, if I know, if I know that God will put things right. I don't have to know what right is in any particular case. Sometimes it's real complicated to discern blame or to assign blame. It's so complicated. There's so many factors involved. We can't even judge. Who are we to judge? We're sinners, right? But we see evil. We've experienced evil. We're stuck. What we need to know is that God is God, the holy God, and the good God will not pass it over. The good God will deal with it. If I know God will deal with it, I can let it go. If I know God is just, I can let it go. I can let it go. It'll surprise you. It doesn't mean I have to forgive. See, this is another thing where we have all kinds of unbiblical notions, The goal of forgiveness is not for you to feel better. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. And there can't be reconciliation if the person doesn't repent. So there can't be real forgiveness unless the person repents. When we say, well, I forgive even though they haven't repented, what we're really saying is I've let it go. I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to center on that. I'm going to let God take care of it. That's what we're called to do. Does that make sense? And if, if you're stuck, there's some abuse or there's something that you've experienced, some betrayal, and you're stuck, you need to put it in God's hands and know that God will deal with it. God will deal with it. Now, it may not be exactly as we planned because you know what? 
God shows grace to us and God can graciously save all people. He can do it. But you remember how he does it. Jesus Christ came and he bore our sin upon the cross. The wrath of God swallows up Christ. He absorbs it in his own person that we might be saved. God doesn't just overlook it. He doesn't just wink at it. God is a holy God. That's not how he functions. So God does judge. If you think that Paul is offering us a lower way, a way that that really doesn't measure up to the Christian way, let me read to you this from 1 Peter. Peter's talking about Jesus. Listen to this. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Do you see that? The same one who on the cross said, prayed, Father, forgive them. In that whole process, he just commits himself to God who judges justly. He knew the Father, the Father would take care of it. That's why in the highest sense, Jesus was no victim Jesus triumphed through the cross. And what I'm saying to you is as a Christian, when we understand who God is and what the goodness of God means, the holy goodness of God, when we understand that, we're no longer victims. We're no longer victims. We're no longer powerless. We may not take the power, but we serve a God who has all power. And we're able then to let it go to not take revenge, to not hate, to put it in God's hands, to trust him to make it right. It's a little bit different than what you usually hear in church, isn't it? But I'm afraid we do get sentimental in the way we think about love. God is a holy God. Now, don't, don't hear me to be saying that because you might struggle with this or that sin in your life that you now stand under the wrath of God. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and you trust in his atoning blood, you are forgiven and you are justified and you belong to God. All that is true. What I'm saying is, God takes sides and he defends his people and he defends the innocent. And it may look for a time like God overlooks it, but Moses himself said, you can be sure your sin will find you out. And those who abuse and kill and harm other people, they'll have to answer to God. You let them go. Leave room for God's wrath. I feel strange even saying that, but that's practically word for word what Paul said, isn't it? It's something to think about. The goodness of God. God's goodness is not some superficial thing. It is a holy goodness. Would you stand? I want us to close in prayer. There'll be different reactions 
to what I just said, depending on what your life experience is. But I guarantee you one thing. There are more than you would think here right now who have been stuck in their spiritual life because they feel like they're the victim and they'll always be a victim. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, you can trust you are no victim. You are a child of God and God will make things right. You need to let it go and just give yourself wholly to God. You might not imagine how you can break through to where you stop hating and forgive even. Someone came up to me after this morning's service and she told me, you know, I had the hardest time with forgiveness, something that had happened to me. She said, I, was, I had to go forward. The church I had people around me praying for me. And she said it was literally a miracle. She starts tearing up. It was a miracle that God set me free. God can set you free. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God and that you hate that which harms and destroys and twists and perverts what you have made, oh God, and the people you have made. And Lord, help us as your people to not hate but love, not retaliate but serve. But Lord, we can't do it if we feel we're still the victim. We pray that you would help us to trust you to see justice done. Lord, it's not for us to tell you what justice involves. Lord, you know, you know, you know. And we trust you to bring it to pass. We resign, Lord, we resign all pretense to being able to determine how evil should be put down, how wrong should be righted. Lord, we put it in your hands. Free those who are here that have struggled in this very area and may a deeper appreciation of what it means that you are good come into all our lives. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen.